0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Febrile, a culture podcast about all things infectious disease. I'm Sarah Dong, a Medpeds ID fellow, and Arthur is back with me today for another Febrile Digest.
1: Hey, Sarah. Thanks for having me again.
0: So we're going to do another literature review like we did not too long ago and sort of like a clinical update of a couple things that we found interesting and just wanted to share. So I think I'll start us off. I wanted to try at least to do my best to summarize what we know about these acute hepatitis cases that have been seen in children and have sort of gotten picked up in some of the news outlets or if if folks are on Twitter. (laughs) I will note that we're recording this on May 4th and It's going to get released in a week and a half or so from now. So there may be newer information since we record. But the first report that was published was from the UK Health Security Agency from April 8th. And they put out a notice saying that they're investigating potential causes of an unusually high number of acute hepatitis cases of unknown etiology in children in Scotland, England, and Wales. And then that was followed up really the next week on April 14th by another rapid communication this time from Euro surveillance, and I'll put links to all these for anyone to look at. Um, but this had a little bit more detail about the initial investigation for the first Scottish cases. And around the time that they published in mid-April, they had 13 cases from March and April. The children were a median age of a little under four years old. They all had vomiting, jaundice, and ALT numbers that were over 2,000. And then their other workup had, had been... Overall, unrevealing, hepatitis A, B, C, and E, as well as COVID testing, were negative. And then there was a mixture of both negative and positive testing for adenovirus. So three of these children were evaluated for transplant, and one actually received a successful liver transplant. Uh, So at this point, they were still hypothesizing infectious pathogen versus some sort of toxic exposure. But infection was already being favored due to some of these adenovirus tests that were positive. Um, And then that was followed the next week by the WHO multi-country disease outbreak news uh, that summarized these initial clusters in Europe and at that point had compiled at least 169 cases, but a much broader uh, age range than the prior two reports, so anywhere from one month to 16 years old. But 10% of the patients required liver transplant, uh, which is a really high number. And then adenovirus have been identified in at least 74 of the cases, which really prompted this to be one of the leading hypotheses. And then to get us back, another recent report in MMWR from the end of April explained what they had seen in pediatric patients at the University of Alabama in Birmingham. Had a similar Story severe acute hepatitis, otherwise immunocompetent children, a median age of two years old, and they had vomiting and diarrhea, um, and ultimately signs of hepatic dysfunction. It looked like the ALT AST ranges were anywhere from 600 up to the 4000s, and they did find adenovirus viremia based on um, PCR numbers without a clear alternate explanation for what was going on, such as other like hepatitis A, B. N.C. or autoimmune causes, Wilson's, things like that. And so it's interesting, they did have information about the quantity of the viral load being anywhere from 1 to 70,000, and this ended up being about nine children that were identified. I think what was interesting, though, is the liver biopsies don't actually show any specific viral inclusions, it sounds like, or clear immunohistochemical evidence of adenovirus but, but again, children with acute liver failure and high, high amounts of, I guess I should say, percentages of kids getting evaluated or or ultimately transplanted. So that was a whirlwind, but hopefully summarize, summarizes kind of what we know so far and, and what the concern is. But I suspect we'll hopefully get... More information in these coming weeks and months.
1: Yeah, you did a great job there, putting all that together. (laughs) That's a lot of. uh, I did talk really fast. (laughs) A lot of information. Um, It's. I. I. I don't have a uh, kind of a a, a real feeling as to where this is leading. Do do you?
0: No, and I think it's interesting because I mean we know that adenovirus can make people quite sick and, or I guess I should say children and and sort of immunocompromised hosts sick and certain circumstances but it's unusual for them to have this profound liver failure and it's hard to know maybe it's not antivirus at all.
1: Exactly I've, I've heard I've heard arguments on on all sides Twitter as you mm. know tells you one <laughs> thing then tells you the exact opposite in another thread and the um, yeah. so, so as in I, I think anyone who's claims to know for sure what's going to going to be the the true outcome is uh, yeah. isn't to be taken too seriously.
0: Yeah, and I think it's just important for people to be aware so that if they have a case that doesn't quite have an explanation that you figure out who's the right person to report it to. Like for us, you know, mechanisms are reporting it back to the CDC
1: or whatever similar mechanism folks have local to them. Yeah, it's great that the... Um... This is one where COVID vaccine is not being uh, highlighted as a, as a putative <laughs> cause. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm very glad to hear that. Um, so will I go on to my next study? So we were going to talk about the Landman et al. study. It's a French multicenter trial that was published in Lancet HIV recently. So they called it the Quatoir trial, 59 sites in France. And they looked at four days on, three days off for HIV therapy. This was really interesting. They um, they enrolled about three hundred and thirty six adults. They they, were, they had multiple baseline regimens. They included protease inhibitor based regimens, NNRTI as well as integrase inhibitor regimens. They looked at um, non inferiority and they found non inferiority, which was really interesting. Um, obviously, people, when there is going to be a, this break in the mantra of you must take your, your medicine every day, um, the concern then is, is there going to be an, a concern for virological resistance? They, they found that there was no signal of major virological resistance coming through in uh, the intermittent arm compared to the, the, the arm that stayed on their therapy um, seven days um, although they did find a numerically slightly higher amount in the intermittent arm. So a larger study probably is needed to see whether that is something that that comes through. Uh, this was a study that went on for um, 48 weeks, so like the equivalent of a year. They followed their patients pretty much every three months, and, um, and, they, and they did a number of interesting kind of analyses, including patient satisfaction, which is extremely high, um, acceptability, extremely high, the, of course, the reason for doing this is to see whether or not you're, you're just wasting um, additional resources by giving it seven days in the week if you don't need to give it seven days in the week. So the, they found there was an actual cost saving of 43%, which is huge if you're looking at that as a budgetary component. They also looked at some of the other um, potentially, you might call them uh, secondary markers, such as in- inflammatory markers. The, they did not find any rise in things like ultra-sensitive CRP or the like. Um, and so that's reassuring to think that there isn't background inflammation that isn't being picked up. At the, at the time of virological load uh, measurement. So it's a really interesting study and um, it makes you think, is this going to change the way we practice in the future? Obviously a lot of people are already switching to dual therapy rather than um, triple therapy. So this is a study looking at triple therapy in this intermittent regimen. So could it be applied to dual therapy in the future? And uh, I suppose it's the question of how low can you go or or something along those lines. It's it's not enough yet to change my practice, but it is very interesting. And um, I, I think it looks like something that might end up changing practice as time goes on.
0: Yeah, and it, it feels like a hard to remember schedule, but I think even before us changing our practice, maybe it's just a good example or a way to sort of for ourselves and to counsel our patients that, I don't know, for those patients who are suppressed, and they probably are missing doses here and there more than perhaps they tell us in clinic that maybe we can relax a little bit. I, you know, I don't know if that's another (laughs) way to think about it, particularly for patients who have difficulty with adherence to the medication.
1: Yeah, that's certainly another benefit of anyway, anyway, no question about it. You can, you can lean on the data a little bit from that point of view.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, my next article is what I thought was a really cool study uh, from Justison and others in CID from earlier in April. They combined population based data about bacteremia and colorectal cancer and found a couple of bacterial species, primarily anaerobic gut bacteria, that were associated with an up to 20% colorectal cancer, or I'm probably going to say CRC, diagnosis risk within one year following their bacteremia. So for context, I suspect many who are listening to Febrile know about the often tested link between colorectal cancer and strep bovis group bacteria um, particularly, Galliliticus. The relationship between cancer and Clostridium septicum bacteremia is also known, but the associations of other anaerobic bugs is is a little less well known. And so, this was a population-based cohort study in about two million people, where they had 45,000 bacteremia episodes with also 231,000 blood culture negative cases in Denmark. And uh, they folded this up against a Danish colorectal cancer registry and found a couple different organisms in addition to the strepovis or clostridium. Uh, The ones that I was going to pull out are primarily bacteroides species. So bacteroides ovatus and uniformis, as well as some fusobacterium, and these patients were actually at similar risk for cancer as items like strep botus. So this leads to that question of what risk level should really prompt a colorectal cancer workup. And is there a time or a threshold when you would ask for that evaluation in cases of bloodstream infections with certain anaerobic gut bugs? And then, you know, I think the follow-up question of that is whether it actually translates into improvement in their morbidity. Uh, so the registry didn't have data on premalignant or adenoma lesions. So it's a little bit harder to translate into thinking about timing for the benefit of their workup. But you do wonder if we'll be able to use information like this or even more details like the subspecies to help us decide whether that workup would be indicated but then, you know, I think the sort of flip side of this is you do wonder a little bit if you perhaps have lost that window of opportunity by the time they have bacteremia. And so it's, a, it's hard to tell from this type of study. But I think just a cool perspective on something that's ID related that you can think about if you were to see patients with Um, something like these bacteroides, bloodstream infections. And so I I suspect a lot of these patients probably were already in a range where it would be indicated to have their uh, colorectal cancer screening, but just something to think about to potentially push for appropriate screening and, or perhaps earlier screening if they have some sort of unique risk factors or the story doesn't quite add up.
1: It's it's interesting to see just the, once again, the integration of big data with, uh, with medicine. So there isn't obviously being able to study 2 million people or get data in that, in that scenario. So, so my next study is a New England Journal paper, and it's really just kind of referring or talking about the, the Tebipenem, which is the new oral carbapenem. So it's from Eckberg et al. New England Journal recently, and they looked at, they were doing a non-inferiority study looking at complicated UTIs or pyelonephritis in admitted patients, and they randomised them to either ertapenem or this new drug, which is an oral drug called uh, tebipenem pivoxyl hydrobromide. No surprise that it p- was proven to be non-inferior. So um, I'm not, I'm not going go to go into huge details about the methods and the and the like. So it, it was a study looking at this oral regimen of um, 600 milligrams three times a day versus ertapenem one gram. Once a day, and, and they found that there was similar cure rates, no difference, and it's just really interesting that there is now a a new oral carbapenem, which is uh, certainly the the first time we've seen this. Um, the question is, is this something that can be moved into other clinical areas, such as pneumonia, such as other um, extended or, or highly resistant organisms? I was interested to see them talking that in the U.S. Of all of the admitted patients with complicated UTI or pyelonephritis, they found that 20% of them were ESBL and 33% were fluoroquinolone resistant. So um, there really is a huge issue with with antimicrobial resistance, which we all know about. And obviously, the solution might lie, I won't say obviously, the solution may lie in developing new antibiotics. And it's good to see new antibiotics coming out. Obviously, the concern is whether or not there will be, if you have a greater ease of access to antibiotics, are you going to lead in time to um, increased resistance rates? And that's, that's a concern.
0: Yeah. And I saw that the company Spiro Therapeutics, it sounds like maybe they're deferring, working on Tebupenum further and restructuring reportedly because the FDA was potentially not going to approve Tebupenum. Um so it's interesting, like wherever you are on the spectrum of being terrified of oral carbapenems or being excited to have another option that I think in many ways, it's always a little bit disappointing to see things that antibiotic wise get sort of worked up and and brought forward, but uh, the company's losing interest and
1: yeah. in not
0: pursuing them, uh, which I think regardless of where you are on that spectrum can probably be a little bit disappointing for us in ID.
1: Yeah. And, and in ID, it's important to note that when a new antibiotic comes on, we're the first people to say, please don't prescribe this unless <laughs> it's really needed. Yeah. So um, we definitely, the idea, it is somewhat terrifying, the idea of a an oral carbapenem that is licensed and um, and available to anyone to prescribe. Yeah, yeah.
0: Well, speaking of stewardship, that was a great transition. My next article, it's a little bit of a combo of transplant ID and antimicrobial stewardship. And I think many of us in ID are very acutely aware of the challenges that come with trying to balance our very broad approach to transplant or you could even say immunocompromised hosts in general and wanting to be good stewards or stewies. And so there was a paper by uh, Dr. So and others called Bring It On Top 5 Antimicrobial Stewardship Challenges in Transplant ID and Practical Strategies to Address Them. And this was in Antimicrobial Stewardship and Health Epi. And so I thought this was a really cool, sort of like a summary paper. And they took five examples of challenges that we see a lot and Provided some strategies on how to approach the question and your multidisciplinary team. And so the five that they selected were asymptomatic bacteria and renal transplant recipients, febrile neutropenia and hematopoietic stem cell transplant, antifungal prophylaxis and liver and lung transplant recipients, LVAD infections, and then C. diff infection. So I'm not going to read those, but uh, if it's a pretty quick read and there's a really great table one that actually summarizes everything all together. Um, so I'd recommend people check it out.
1: Yeah, I think it sounds really, really important and really difficult to uh, to properly get a handle on. Yeah. So another one I was going to talk about is the OFID publication by Hillenbrand et al. about Candida and the eyes so I thought this is quite interesting for a few reasons. There's always been the argument raging between infectious diseases and ophthalmology, as to whether or not it is indicated to get a an ocular exam on every patient who has a candidemia. And as an ID doctor, I've always gone with the with the line that yes, it is important and it is needed. And um, I liked in their discussion they kind of brought up the two questions, saying, well. That the, what you need is these two questions to be answered. Is the incidence high enough of ocular complications of candidemia? And then a really important one, will a change in management happen if there are ocular complications of candidemia? And this is the second point is the one that has really been called into focus recently because the um, since 2014, um, or no, sorry, since 2016, the IDSA has been saying um that the primary treatment for candidemia should be echinocandins. And echinocandins don't have ocular penetration. So you can imagine that, um, that, you can intuitively imagine that the the eye would be more vulnerable if you're treating with a non-azole, non-amphotericin regimen um, in, a, in a systemic candida infection. So this was a study. Um, It was a large retrospective review where they looked at 2014 until 2020. They identified 226 cases of candidemia and and they found about a 23% overall ocular complications associated with the candidemia, of which 25% they felt were truly due to the candidemia, were candidemia specific. What they found, which is more interesting, was that as time progressed, so pre-2016, it was around about 18%. And 2019, it was about 40%. 2020, of small numbers, it was about 60%. So, so really and truly, they were feeling that they were seeing a, a a greater increase in ocular complications with time. So basically, it is suggesting that with the advent of Echinocandons, um, you really do need to be more concerned about getting an ophthalmological review. And um, the reason being that if you identify um, an ocular problem associated with candidemia, you will need to change your um, regimen to either an azole-based regimen or an amphotericin-based regimen to to treat out the course,
0: I feel like this is a great summary of the questions that really come up when when you're faced with this and patients that are in in the hospital. And ever since the change in the ophthalmology guidelines suggesting against routine exams, I think it's a good good excuse for all of us to take a look at what we what we know and understand about and 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 thinking about this.
1: The um, one of the other points that they made was they were saying, well if only a minority of them were Canada specific, were these just background eye changes? And they they said they didn't really feel they were because those background eye changes worsened with time. So they felt that they were Canada associated or worsened by the candidemia or something, but they they, they really did feel it was clinically significant.
0: Yeah. Well, my next one is another tie-in back to actually a, a febrile episode. So I selected a paper from... Dr. Fitzpatrick and a couple others also from CID that looked at the information that we understand about the impact of maternal hyperimmune globulin and valacyclovir on outcomes of CMV infection in pregnancy. And so this is a review from some authors in Australia who basically summarize what we know about using these two therapies to prevent vertical transmission or to potentially reduce the sequelae of neonatal CMV infection. You know, this is an area that we're still trying to understand. There's definitely various observational studies that support the use of valacyclovir if you can time it right in pregnancy, which is a challenge in and of itself. And it's interesting because what we know about the use of CMV hyperimmunoglobulin, uh, it wasn't supported as a preventative strategy in the two available randomized control trials that we have, but uh, there. There are several observational studies that were in contrast to that. I actually posted this previously from the Febrile account when I saw it because it it timed really well with our ongoing case-based episode, So hopefully uh, folks are listening to those. We're doing this Curious Congenital Conundrum series. The episode for CMV from Doctors Hermione Lyle and Nuria Sanchez-Clemente, it's number 37. Dr. Lyle does a really nice job summarizing these tools and, and thinking about the evidence for them in the context of this example case that we did uh, for the episode. So I think if people listen to the episode to think about CMV and pregnancy and newborns, and then also read this paper, it's a really great synergy, and they'd work work together. And hopefully, the consult notes on the website as well. I think I've linked to all the pap- majority of the papers that would be relevant, but it was just had good timing.
1: <laughs> yeah, it sounds really good. My my last paper is the um, is an editorial. I just thought was interesting and topical, and. Um, is written by uh, written in the BMJ. They don't give a name of an author so I wonder is it the editor-in-chief or is it the the board of editors have written it as, as a group but the it's talking about infectious diseases and war and their their interrelatedness. And um, it's it's specifically mentioning the Ukraine war. So um, just to highlight some of the points that they make, they talk about the the destroyed infrastructure from a health infrastructure, also from a transport infrastructure, in terms of being able to get to and from hospitals, um, in terms of resource redirection to the war effort rather than to, to health care. They, of course, look at uh, vaccine-preventable diseases, especially measles outbreaks and polio outbreaks they mention they talk about people on um, antiretrovirals and, and the insurance and disruption to their supply chain tb overcrowding covid and uh, and the overcrowding happening both in the sites of the war but also in in refugee camps um, where the where displaced people have had to move to they do reference wars in afghanistan yemen uh, burma but they, they do focus a lot on this ukraine war and they're very brave in their final paragraph where they talk about how, yes, it will be great if Ukraine can can get out of this without the same destruction we're seeing everywhere else in the same association. But in one way, they said if that does happen, it will probably be an indictment of the the West's approach to white wars versus non-white wars. And uh, and at wars in places where where this color people's skin is not uh, Caucasian or white skinned, I, I thought it was very brave and very appropriate that they would that they would call out and bring it into the into the mainstream.
0: Yeah, this piece made me think of how a lot of the uh, federal guests who've come on the show, you know, we ask about can you share a piece of culture or something that you think you'd recommend for the listeners. And multiple people have brought suggestions for books or or items that emphasize this connection between ID and history or world events or war. And I think a lot of these are brought up in the context of reflecting on our journey with COVID. But I I think the idea of creating an awareness of our past to learn um to learn from is important in various scenarios. And that includes conflict and, and war. You know, I think the main message I totally agree with that our response to and decisions about both these world events as well as our patients and infections, they don't exist in some sort of isolation from one another that they are
1: fundamentally tied to one another, yeah, and it's and it's a um it's amazing to see the same awful outcomes happening again and again and again and again. so um, it's yeah. it's really important to to be aware of it, but not just to be aware of it, but to try to to use that knowledge to change the outcome, hopefully. Yeah.
0: Well, we did it, Arthur. <laughs> we got in right under 30 minutes. We have like a minute left. I It's so nice to have you back and uh, we'll keep keep bringing these episodes and hopefully, you know, if folks have suggestions for things that we should talk about. They can always send it to us.
1: Absolutely. And thank you so much for having me on again. It's a real honor. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you all for listening. Like our other episodes, I'll put links to all the articles in our consult notes. Stay safe and
1: I'll see you next week.